0: All right, uh, I'm Don Reinertsen. I've got about 40 minutes to go through this material with you. Uh, I've packed a fair amount of material into that because this, for some of you, this is your only exposure to these ideas, so I I'd probably put a little more payload than I need uh, in it. It's, um, I'm going to proceed through it briskly but not recklessly, so uh, we'll go through the stuff You're at different levels of sophistication in terms of you. I've tried to put stuff that is valuable to even people with a lot of experience in lean product development and stuff that is valuable for people who are just beginners. So that's sort of the mix. I'm not going to talk about my background. I'll just let the material speak for itself. Okay, so what I want to cover is some of what I call the big ideas behind lean product development and uh, it's not that there are only seven big ideas, it's just that's what I can fit into a presentation of this length. Now, lean product development is, unlike lean manufacturing, which has been around for 50 or 60 years, in which there is complete agreement as to what lean manufacturing is, in lean product development, there are different schools of thought about what lean product development is. And I represent one school of thought. I would sort of characterize it as sort of more of a science-based lean than a faith-based lean. And as we go through the material, you'll end up seeing where some of those differences are. So let's jump right into economics to start out with. First big idea is that if you provide developers with good decision support information, they can make better economic choices more quickly. And you'll notice in a lot of people's schools of lean product development, economics doesn't even come into the process. This is really central to my view of how do you end up approaching lean. Now, many of you would think that, well, we've got these big finance departments, they must be providing us with good information today. and uh, the sad news is you don't really have the correct information to make decisions in product development today. And I'll start with a ba- very basic question that you would confront in a product development process. Let's say you had a testing area and you had a choice between operating at 80% utilization with a two-week queue or 90% utilization with a four-week queue. What would be the better choice? Can you answer that question? Okay. Can you take the tools of lean thinking and answer that question? Say? I would say the first one, because it's time it's expensive. If you extend your product development cycle to four weeks, you're uh, losing a lot of time. Okay, and that that's an interesting hypothesis. So you're saying that I intuitively know that two-week savings in cycle time is worth more money than a ten percentage point shift in utilization, yeah. and how do you know that? Uh, because you quantified neither one. Uh, the, the reality, and, well, because the, the, the two-week shift is a fifty percent increase, right, or a hundred percent increase, depending which way you want to look at it. Right. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, that's a far greater advantage than ten percent. And if you're looking at hard development time is what's expensive. You only have so many, so much time in okay. a year. The, that, if you need a new product by christmas you be to, yeah that that is a domain specific conclusion if you're, you, this, you say, get- oh he, he was saying that time is intrinsically more expensive uh, and things, and that's a very domain specific conclusion the, the the reality is is that you have insufficient information You're trying to compare two weeks of cycle time with 10 percentage points of utilization. They are expressed in different units of measure. You cannot compare them until you get them into the same unit of measure. And this is a fundamental problem. Now the question is, what would you choose as the unit of measure? And the question would logically be answered by, who are you trying to influence? If you're trying to influence the people who control the resources in the company, you might want to pick a unit of measure that is significant to them. Instead of picking engineer smiling faces as your measurement space, maybe you want to pick life cycle profits. And that's precisely the way you approach this problem. See, traditionally what we've done in product development is we've chased after proxy variables. We will give people Goals like reduced waste, reduce variability, improve efficiency, uh, lower the unit cost. And it's a reasonably good hypothesis to say, I think I improve life cycle profits when I lower unit cost. Because that's a very strong correlation. That's, that's really a true statement. The problem is when you're dealing with problems that have two moving parts, and those two moving parts move in opposite directions, which frequently occurs in the world of product development, you've got to drive them into the same measurement space. And so, what we try to do with economic models and economic frameworks is we say, what are the transfer functions between the proxy variable space and the economic space? Is that? If I turn one of the knobs in the proxy variable space, what will happen to the lifecycle economics of the program? And that's, that's, that's the basic concept that we end up using. And you might think of it, uh, most of you engineers in the room, and how many people have no exposure to engineering at this point in time? OK, there's a handful of you there's stuff in here for you but there's a lot more stuff for the engineers. So so tune out right now. This is just like linear algebra, right? Is that if we can span the proxy variable space with a set of basis vectors and describe any decision in the proxy variable space, if we know how the basis vectors transform, we can instantly turn that decision into economic form. Okay? And how do we figure out what the transformations are? It's it's just a basic sort of financial analysis. It's sensitivity analysis. If I asked you to figure out what would it cost us to be 60 days late, what you might do is you might say, how much money would we make if we were on time over the life of the product? How much money would we make over the life of the product if we were 60 days late? The difference between the two is the cost of being 60 days late. And that is precisely what we do. We identify parameters that change, currencies that we might end up trading against one another. We change them one at a time. You can think of it as a partial derivative on life cycle profits. And then we get our transfer functions. The answer will look something like this. A 1% expense overruns worth (coughs) $40,000, a 1% cost overruns worth $150,000, a 1% value shortfall is worth 100000 A one month delay is worth 500000 With that information, I can now start addressing decisions that have more than one moving part. So somebody comes to me and says, if you give me another two months of cycle time, I can lower the product cost by 2%. I can say 2% is only worth 150, 000, Is 150 times 2, 300,000. Uh, two months of cycle time is worth a million bucks, that's a bad trade. If they say, I can save 20% of product cost, that's $3 million of profit impact for $1 million cycle time, that's a good trade. And the, the real idea, now, in, in your business, I think you probably gave the correct answer because you have enough experience to recognize what the cost of delay in your business is compared to the importance of hitting the target expenses. But to generalize the problem, what we need to say, look, This is knowable information. We can figure out what these things are worth in order to make trade-offs. Now, some of you, being good engineers, will agonize over, gee, can you really calculate cost of delay accurate to three significant digits? And the answer is no, we can't calculate it accurate to three significant digits, but there is no reason to do that because you simply have to calculate it more accurately than the information you use today when you make a trade-off between cycle time and something else. And the question is, how accurate is the information you're using today? Well, this question has come up a lot over the years, and what I will do with the team to demonstrate how clueless they really are is I will get 10 people in the room who are all capable of influencing the schedule of the project. The regulatory affairs person, the (laughs) QA person, the hardware engineer, the software engineer, the purchasing manager, and I'll ask them, what would it cost the company in life cycle pre-tax profit over life if this product was delayed by 60 days? write your answer anonymously on a piece of paper, we're going to gather the papers and rank them from the highest number to the lowest number we get. So typical range, 50 to 1 with intuition. You'll have somebody saying it's going to cost us $10,000 a month, you're going to have somebody else saying it's going to cost us $50,000, $500,000 a month in the process. Now, those two people are sitting in a meeting How do you think the person who believes cost of delay is $500,000 a month feels about the person who believes it's $10,000 a month? Do you think they believe they're treating the product with adequate urgency and things like that? Very difficult to get aligned decisions. If people believe they're acting in good faith on what the real economics are, and somebody else is doing something on totally different assumptions, you have conflict on the team in the process. Now, the lowest number, I, you know, I, I was interviewing a company that had just won the Malcolm boldridge Award. They thought they were Americans' gift to management. It's, you know, one of those things, Kent Beck was sort of talking a little, little bit about it, uh, you know, yesterday, is that, you know, when, when you get the Malcolm boldridge Award, you're, one of the requirements is you have to give speeches to people about how great you are and if you give the speech often enough, you start believing the speech. Uh, so they, they ended up believing that they were really great. That was the first time I saw a 200 to 1 range, uh, is, which was more than two orders of magnitude. Then later in the process, I got to visit companies where somebody would say the cost of delay is $100,000 a month. And somebody else, usually an engineer, because engineers can be very cruel to marketing people, would say it's not going to cost us anything because nobody's ever going to buy any of these anyway. And, and so the Guinness Book of Records is an infinite range. What is interesting is the lowest range I've seen in 25 years is a 10 to 1 range on a team that does not use analysis. That's the bar we have to beat and it is trivially easy to calculate cost of delay within that range of accuracy. So. First idea, let's figure out what the economics are of the things that we're trying to chase after in the process and share that information with the people at the lowest level on the team so the micro decisions on the team are made aligned with the economics. Second big idea, invisible unmanaged cues are the root cause of poor economic performance in product development. All of you are familiar with traffic at rush hour on a crowded highway. Beautiful illustration of queuing theory. If I take a four-lane highway, remove one lane of capacity at rush hour, I am removing 25% of the system capacity. What will happen to cycle time? Will it change by 25%? No. I might double or triple cycle time. Remove one lane of capacity at 3 a.m. in the morning when the system is lightly loaded, you see no change in cycle time. So, your life experience with traffic shows you exactly what queuing theory would tell you, which is that changes in loading have a nonlinear impact and the nonlinearity depends on the level of capacity utilization. And that is precisely what real queuing theory uh, shows us. This is the queuing curve for what's called an m one infinite queue. It's a classic uh, queuing system. Other queuing curves look very similar, but they end up bending at at slightly different places. This has a nice closed-form solution for it. I I won't discuss the math, but I'll I'll just point one minor thing, which is that the length of the queue, when capacity utilization, which in queuing theory our symbol is rho, starts reaching 100% becomes infinite. There's a poll in the response function there at uh, 100% utilization. What's the highest level of utilization somebody running a factory would load their factory to? Probably about 85 to 90% utilization why will a competent factory manager not load to 95% utilization because they know they cannot make deliveries when they load to that level of utilization. Is that I for 14 years I was collecting data from the executive courses I taught at Caltech. I was asking people what level of utilization do you load your development process to. The average was 98.5% utilization. Now you know, what has intrinsically more variability, product development or manufacturing? Product development has more intrinsic variability. Logically, you would expect a lower level of loading uh, in a product development process. In practice, we load it to a higher level of utilization, and then we scratch our heads and say, I wonder why things don't come out on time. Maybe I need to leave more margin in the schedule. I need to build bigger buffers in what I'm doing and things like that. Well. What you need to do is to learn that you can't load a stochastic system to 100% utilization without dramatically affecting the cycle times in the process. Now, the beauty is that if you know what cost of delay is, and and maybe I'll just sidetrack for a second, why don't we manage queues well in product development today? In manufacturing, If I end up overloading a factory and the inventory doubles in a seven-day period, I see piles of stuff on the factory floor. If I go to the CFO, the CFO will say we got an extra $2 million of inventory in the plant. In a product development process, if I overload that process and the inventory doubles in a seven-day period, what sign do you have? You have no sign because inventory and product development is information, information is intrinsically invisible, it is physically invisible, some guys I knew at HP said our inventory is bits on a disk drive and we have very big disk drives here at HP but it is also financially visible because we carry it on the balance sheet at zero cost. We expense R&D when we incur it. So we have no, none of the red flags manufacturing people have alerting us to inventory. But the interesting thing is if we know what cost of delay is, we can look at this problem and say, look, the less excess capacity in the system I have, the more efficient I am at using the capacity, the cost of excess capacity is low, but the queue becomes larger and larger, and when the queue is on the critical path, it costs me the cost of delay. So I should never reduce the loading on. The, I, I should never uh, increase the loading on the system to the point where the efficiency savings I'm getting on this green line end up being smaller than the rise in cost on the red line. Now the interesting question is, what percent of the product developers in the world understand this problem? I would say 99% of the product developers in the world understand only the green line, what the cost of capacity is. Because when I speak at metrics conferences, I ask people, product developers, what percent of you measure the size of queues in your product development process? Two percent of the hands go up. 100% 100% of people measure cycle time, 2% of people are measuring queue size in their process. I ask people how many of you know the cost of delay? About 15% of product developers know the cost of delay on the on their products. You would have to know both to be able to draw that red line on the curve. So there's a very small number of people out there that really understand the economic trade-off between capacity and queue time within their process. And the flashlight that illuminates the problem is cost of delay. That is what gives you visibility on this problem of queuing. And visibility in a way that is credible to the CFO when you're trying to, uh, to change something. Okay, what are the problems caused by queues? Uh, massive problems. The cycle time problem is obvious, but some people think as long as the queue is off the critical path, it's a free queue. My observation is there are no free queues in product development. You could could end up having a module of software you're working on that is off the critical path. If you have a queue in testing associated with that module, you are delaying feedback to the person writing that code, and delaying feedback has an economic cost. So uh, the biggest cost is usually cycle time, but there's always an effect on quality in terms of delayed feedback when you permit cues to be present in your process. A lot of other effects, I I don't wanna talk about them right now. Okay, big idea number three. In product development, we should try to alter the economic impact of variability rather than trying to eliminate. Perhaps the most toxic idea coming out of lean manufacturing is the belief that it is universally good to reduce the amount of variability in a process. That, and that is absolutely true in the manufacturing domain. It, it is the gold standard in manufacturing. It is not the gold standard in product development. I want to show you this in a slightly sophisticated way because it's the, the, the way that will convince finance people of the truth of this. Back in the 90s, Robert Merton and Myron Scholes won the Nobel Prize in Economics for option pricing theory, for the Black-Scholes option pricing model and things. They were the first people to quantify what is happening to the how a value of an option ends up changing. What's the fair price to pay for an option? The way they basically did it is they said the future an option gives you a right to buy stock at a strike price, uh, a future strike price. The actual price of that stock in the future is going to follow a statistical distribution. It's normally a log normal distribution. It looks very much like a normal distribution. But it's unpredictable. We don't know where that stock price is going to be. Now if at the time of option expiration the price of the stock is below the price of your option you will not exercise the option and you lose the value of the option, but you never lose more than the value of the option. If the price is higher than uh, the value of the strike price, for every dollar it's higher, you put an extra dollar in your pocket as a result of it. Now, in order to calculate the economic expectation, it's like any expectation in statistics, you multiply the probability function by the function you're trying to get the expectation of. So you multiply this function by that function and you get a curve that looks like this. The area on the right side is larger than the area on the left side and that is in short why options have financial value. It is not because of the statistical distribution, it's because of the asymmetry in the payoff function. what do you think happens to the value of an option if you increase the variability in the stock price? In finance, we call that volatility, not variability, but it means the same thing. The value of option gets higher, and you can see that logically because I increase variability, I spread the tails in both directions. Spreading the tail on the left side does no damage because I always lose the same amount. Spreading the tail on the right side drives you into the high payoff region, which ends up producing a better outcome. Now, on this slide, I've just done the calculation with two uh, standard deviations to just illustrate the point. You see the difference between the high and the low standard deviation. On the left side, the areas are the same. They're just distributed differently, but the total area is the same. On the right side, the high standard deviation ends up creating a value. Uh, more value. And so if you went to an economist and you told an economist, I have learned there is a universal truth that minimizing variability maximizes economic outcomes, they would laugh in your face. That is a statement you can only make with an audience that is economically illiterate. Those are the only people who will end up believing that statement. Now, it doesn't mean that variability is intrinsically good uh, in the process, is that, you know, the point I want to make is it is in the presence of these asymmetric payoff functions that we end up seeing variability being good. It's only in certain situations. It is certainly not universally bad. Asymmetric payoffs are highly common in the world of product development. You're doing drug development, you have a new candidate molecule, it turns into a blockbuster drug, you make a billion dollars, it pans out, you've spent ten thousand dollars doing an assay on the thing and finding out it doesn't work. Huge asymmetry and payoff. If you're a drug company, do you want to work on candidates that have high variability in them or low variability? High variability are the only ones that will turn out to be the blockbuster drugs. How do you manage risk? You have a large po- portfolio of candidate molecules. That's the way you eliminate the risk. You don't bet on the things that are safe bets. The other important thing, and I won't go into it, is you can change the payoff function. And what You can do this as homework, but what lean startup techniques are doing is they are altering the payoff function in product development processes because they allow you to shut down unproductive paths early and they allow you to put more resources against the productive outcomes and things. And that is altering the payoff functions, which improves economics. Okay, big idea number four. The fastest and easiest way to reduce queues is to reduce the batch size in our product development processes. let me give you sort of a physical example of batch size because it's really accessible. Uh, in product development, we might have a drawing review process where in a traditional product development process, what we might do is accumulate 200 drawings all at once, and then we'll hold a design review on the product. We'll review all 200 drawings in one batch, and then we transfer them down to the next stage of the process. Now, some people have asked the question, is that really the best way to do this? Why don't we end up, instead of reviewing 200 drawings every 10 weeks, why don't we review 10 drawings every week? Why don't, every Wednesday afternoon, why don't we review review the drawings that were completed in the last seven days and pass them on to the material planning people downstream in the process? Well, somebody said, well, it's going to cause more meetings and things like that. Yeah, it's going to cause more meetings, but that's why we do it on a regular time-based cadence. That's why we don't do it as an ad hoc asynchronous meeting in a process. But what advantage do you think you get from doing the small batch reviews of the drawings? Yes, sir. If one drawing depends on another drawing, you find out there's a flaw in the drawing you avoid making a bad drawing later. Yeah, he said if one drawing depends on another drawing, you end... Uh, you find out there's a flaw, you avoid the problem in the other drawing, and that is precisely the right answer, is that if you make a bad assumption about manufacturing tolerances in your process, you get feedback from the manufacturing engineer, we can't hold that tolerance, you do not embed that mistake in 190 other drawings in the process. It's earlier feedback, everyone in software is familiar with the value of earlier feedback in processes. There's another. Other interesting thing that it does is that when the work is traveling in one large badge, and people say uh, which drawing will be completed first, it's like everybody riding in the same bus. Who's going to arrive first? Everybody's going to arrive first. You all arrive at the same time. If you put 40 people in 10 cars instead of one large bus, now you have the question of who goes in the first car. you now have the opportunity of what I would call temporal decoupling, which you did not have with large batches. And what, what might you want to move through the system first in the earliest batch? The ones with the highest cost delay, the ones with the highest risk in them, because you want to resolve as much uncertainty as possible, as, as Nat uh, Milstein was talking about and things. Uh, Often things with the longest lead time, you want to get them into the process early so you have enough time to work through them. It is an opportunity that does not even exist if you are using large batch sizes in a process. Uh, A favorite example of mine is what you folks in software do in terms of small batch testing. What happens when you do small batch testing? You make smaller changes in the code, you have fewer open bugs, you have faster cycle time through the process. Faster cycle time means that you will get earlier feedback uh, and faster learning. If a programmer makes a bad assumption about a protocol and they discover 24 hours after they make that bad assumption, they will stop making that bad assumption. If a programmer makes a bad assumption of protocol and they get feedback 90 days later, they will embed the bad assumption in 90 days worth of code and other people will be writing code that is dependent on that. And I mean, it's a no-brainer for you folks that reducing batch sizes uh, ends up making sense in software. You get better code. You get cheaper correction costs. Uh, one company I was talking with said, you know, if you test the code 90 days after the programmer wrote the code, the programmer is going to probably tell you that was not my code. I didn't <laughs> write that. And, they, and yes, I can prove you wrote it. Well, I certainly don't remember it. Give them feedback 24 hours after they wrote the code, there's some chance they might remember what they were doing 24 hours before. If With a faster cycle time, the less time your product is in flight, the less requirements change you experience. And, and in fact, this is an exponential problem. Requirements change goes up exponentially with the time in flight for reasons I don't have time to explain. But you get a huge reduction in requirements change when you have a faster flow through time in the process. I was talking with the team of, at HP where they said, you know, we, we used to dispatch bugs into our correction process as soon as we found them. We had so much inventory in the process that was a long flow through time, we discovered that we were making fixes on modules of the code that were no longer in the product by the time it came out the other end of the process. And so now what they do is, they hold back the bugs in a ready queue they only dispatch at the rate they have resources for they have a fast flow through time and their slogan is we only work on fresh bugs in this process Uh, fewer open bugs what's the difference between the uh, one week and the 10-week flow through time it's the difference between 300 open bugs and 30 open bugs why would you like to have 30 open bugs You get better uptime on testing your system. You get higher validity in your testing. You have fewer status reports because if I've got 300 bugs and a 10-week flow-through time and I give status once a week, I'm going to end up doing 10 times as many bugs and 10 times as many status reports. If I have 30 open bugs and one week flow-through time and things, if I'm reporting once a week, half the bugs I'm not even going to end up having to report on in the process. Huge reduction in overhead. Smaller changes in the code means less debug complexity. If I change one line in the code, one line can be broken. If I change two, it's line one or line two or an interaction between one and two. Interactions goes up roughly with two to the nth, n being the number of things you're changing and things. So you get a huge increase in the difficulty of debugging and things. So this is, I mean, it's a complete, anyone who has ever done batch size reduction in software processes is a believer in reducing batch size ends up improving the economics. Uh, And this is one of the great this is one of the great lessons of lean manufacturing that can be moved in untouched into uh, the world of product development. Batch size reduction is a great idea. Easiest way to control the cycle time in a process is to control the amount of whip in the process. In queuing theory, there's this famous formula called Little's Formula. It relates the size of the queue with the departure rate and the uh, waiting time. So I'll use all the official uh, formulas, uh, letters here, uh, so that you don't see something that might disagree with what you learned before. Wait time in the queue, length of the queue, divided by the departure rate. So you walk into Starbucks, and you say, how long am I going to wait for my coffee? What's the length of the queue? There's 20 people in front of me. How fast are they serving people? Four people a minute, five minute wait time in the process. It's as simple as that. But this is actually one of the great leverage points that is being exploited by lean because The reason you get fast cycle time in a factory is because you're reducing the amount of WIP in the factory. If you want to control cycle time, you can control it more effectively by controlling the amount of WIP than any other thing you can do. And that's really the motive behind WIP constraints. In software, this is known as the lean Kanban approach and things like that, enormously uh, leveraged approach. Uh, This is a diagram I've used with senior executives. Uh, Senior executives are very smart, but they often have short attention spans, and so you want diagrams that are readily accessible, and this one has been tested by time. I explained to them, here's what you're doing. You're taking 24 months to develop four products in parallel. At the end of a 24-month period, you have produced four products. Here's what you could be doing. You could be doing product one and two in parallel and then three and four. In both cases, you will have four products done at the end of 24 months. You're never worse off by doing one and two and then three and four. But what is the benefit? The benefit is if there is a cost of delay associated with product one and two, you're putting that money in your pocket. So. Companies that calculate cost delay—it's a real easy sell to convince them you got too much stuff in your pipeline. You're throwing the money away. I, I just sort of use the Colombo approaches. Well, you tell me you're trying to make a lot of money and things like that, but you're using the approach that makes the least amount of money. Help me understand why you would be doing that. Now, the. The people who complain about is the marketing people. The marketing people will tell uh, you, we like to tell the customers that we're working on everything. And what I tell people is that, you look, if you're going to tell the customers you're working on everything, you really need to practice full disclosure and tell them, we're working on everything, but we guarantee you it will not be delivered any earlier than if we were not working on it at all. Because, in a in a capacity-constrained system, you know, and the the fantasy a lot of senior executives have, and it seems quite intuitive, is the earlier I start, the earlier I will finish. That is not a true statement in a capacity-constrained system. If there are no capacity constraints, yeah, that's true. But in a capacity-constrained system, if the pump is pumping ten liters uh, a minute out of the other end. That's gonna determine the rate at which stuff is coming out the other end. It's as simple as that. You don't, uh, if the planes are landing at JFK at 20 planes an hour, putting more planes in the air as a way to make them land faster is not really a good strategy. All it means is the planes start falling out of the air uh, in in the process. So, Now, there are also advantages for project three and four because when you pull the trigger at a 12 month time horizon from product launch versus 24 months, you have better requirements, you have more mature technology, you have learning you can get from project one and two. So there's lots of arguments for that. Now, in order to reduce the amount of WIP, a technique that's really catching on a lot in the Kanban world is these Kanban boards. And uh, here is sort of a typical physical Kanban board I have a ready queue of work, I have people doing the coding, coder A, B, and C, Uh, I have ready for test, testing, and test complete. People would move the post-it notes uh, from column to column. You can set WIP constraints in a variety of different ways. You can set a local WIP constraint on an individual column. You can set a regional WIP constraint. You can set a global WIP constraint. There are pros and cons for doing uh, different things. You're most commonly going to see the local whip constraints in the the literature that you read. But it's actually done in different ways in manufacturing as well. People will look at this and say, visual control, you know, we've done that for 50 years in product development. You know, what's the difference between this and what we've done before? There is a massive difference between this and the visual control we've used historically in product development. Historically, we've used Gantt charts, we've used Pert charts. On a Gantt chart and a Pert chart, the horizontal axis is time. What is the horizontal axis on this kan- Kanban board? It is the state that the work is in. It is not time, it is state. Why is it so important to know what state the work is in? Because That tells you where the queues are, and the queues are determining what the cycle time in the process is. And for the first time when people are monitoring the amount of work, the congestion in the states, is they're getting visibility on where the queues are, where the emergent queues are in their process. I could give you 10 Gantt charts up on a board and ask you do we have a queue in testing, you would have no clue. I could put up a board like this, and you would instantly know that the queue had doubled in 24 hours within that process. Okay, big idea number six. Um, With proper sequencing, we can reduce the cost of queues without reducing the size of queues. Um, This is, some of you that have followed Dean Leffingswell's stuff on the Scaled Agile Framework will have some exposure to this. Uh, the standard way we sequence work in manufacturing is FIFO. And that's because on, on this particular diagram, what will happen is the red shaded area represents the cost of delay in the process. It's how long something is delayed. Uh, and the red shaded area is the same whether I do first in, first out, or last in, first out. In uh, what makes economic sense when you have non-homogeneous flow is to use a technique called weighted shortest job first. You divide the cost delay by the duration. The main point I, I, I'd like to point out there is that size of the red shaded area has gone down by 96%. I've not changed capacity, I've not changed demand, I've just ensured that the high cost delay jobs remain in the system for a shorter time than the low cost delay jobs, okay? like. Uh, I'm going to have office hours after the break and things like that, so if you want to dig into any of this deeper, I'm glad to discuss it with you more deeply. Last point I just want to make is fast feedback loops enable economic performance in the presence of uncertainty. Little toy problem. I have a lottery ticket worth $300. You have to pick a three-digit number. You can pay $3 to select three digits at once you'd be able to figure out one out of a thousand chance of making $3,000 is worth $3. What if I allowed, still charge you $3 for three digits, but you bought the first digit for $1, I gave you feedback, and then you bought the second digit, and then you could decide whether you wanted to buy the third digit with feedback. The economics look like this, 100% chance I'm going to buy the first digit, 10% chance, I'm going to buy the second one. 1% chance, I'm going to end up buying the third digit. I have improved the economic, I've changed this from a break-even game to a game that pays off $1.89. I didn't change the payoff, it's still $3,000. I didn't change the cost of the investment, it's still $3 to buy three digits. I've given you the option of shutting down the game at intermediate times in the process. That creates enormous economic value. This is just batch size reduction. I'm reducing the batch size in which I'm buying information, which allows me to economically exploit the information. This is how lean startup works. Any of you doing lean startup would automatically recognize this is what you're doing. You're creating value by being able to shut down unproductive paths early or being able to put more resources behind productive debt. In financial theory, we call this an embedded option. Embedded options can be quantified in value. Okay, so summary. Understand your economics, make your queues visible, and control them. Create a process to exploit variability. Reduce your batch size and control cycle time by controlling WIP. Sequence work based on economics and accelerate feedback with small batches. Uh, the books, developing products, this is the ski slope system on difficulty level. Uh, it, it, the first two books are pretty accessible, easy reads and things like that. The Eric Reese, uh used the term for the last book. He said it's best book on product development he's read, but he also said it is not for the faint of heart. It is, uh, it is uh, meaty. So, I, I'm not encouraging you to read it, and think, but sometime when you want to go further, you can read a book like that. Okay, so that's what I wanted to cover. Uh, I think I've used up all the time, uh, and I'm glad to stay and answer, uh, you know, maybe I'll take just take one question from the audience, and then you can start your break. So, anybody have a big question that... Yes, sir. Scale Agile Framework adapted your original model. Yeah, of the shortest job first. Or do you endorse that? Uh, let's say I strongly believe it is directionally correct and the best uh, adaptation of it compared to anything else I see out there. Is I, I mean, I think it could go further, but uh, you know, I, I am just a huge supporter of what Dean is doing in getting people to start thinking about. How do you make sequencing choices in doing product development tests? Because that is a complete dry spot in the world of lean manufacturing. And as I showed you, 95% reduction in cost delay. It's a huge leverage spot for product developers because we have non homogenous flow. Okay, so let's declare victory. Appreciate you coming.